chapter four. We're gonna start with verse number eight. Uh, this is an amazing story in the Bible, something that I've always loved, starting with verse number eight. You guys with me? Yeah, it says this. It says, one day Elijah went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. And she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. So let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. And then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. And one day when Elijah came, he went up to his room and laid down there. Take note that he's lying down in the room that this woman had made for him. And so she li he lies down there and he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and she stood before him and Elijah said to him, tell her you have gone through all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elijah asked. And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. That's his only dis description in the entire Bible. This man is old. Uh, and, and verse 15 says, then Elijah said, call her. And so he called her and she stood in the doorway. And about this time next year, Elijah said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, do not mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. I believe it's gonna be a good one today. I really believe that. And so I've titled this message today, you ready for it? I've titled this message, Make Room for Your Miracle. Can we pray this morning? God, we come before you, God. We pray, God, that our hearts and our minds would be open to receiving what it is that you want to impart to us this morning. Help us not receive it without actually applying it and being a better person on our way out than when we came in. Have your way this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 4. It's always been a story that has jumped out uh, to me for many different reasons. And and as we go through this story, I pray that God would, would open our eyes to see things a little differently this time. The truth is, is that every time you open the Word of God, it's kind of like an onion. And every time you open up the Word of God, you're peeling another layer back, and you notice things that you didn't notice the first time through it. And I love, that's what, that's what it means when the Bible says the Word of God is alive and active. It's not just living, it's active. It's adapting. It's, when we read it, it's, it reads different almost every time. I love that about the Word of God. And, and as I read this story, this is kind of what happened. And I honestly think that I could spend an entire month talking about this story. There's just that much in it. And, and I'm going to try to do what I believe I can expand over an entire month. I believe I'm going to do it this morning all at once. So we're going to be here for four hours. I'm just kidding. No, no, I can't even listen to myself speak for four hours. So, uh, but we're going we're gonna to do this, and I just need you to lean in with me this morning, okay? We're going we're gonna to be going fast and furious. Don't watch Fast and Furious 10. Uh, if you're a normal person with a normal life, it's not worth your time. Uh, and so well, we're going to dive into this this morning. As I read this story, something that struck me was the posture of this woman from Shunem. And, and, and as I read this story, I, I believe that I would actually make the argument that, that Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 4 is the side character to this woman's story. 
And, and as we go through the story, there are three things that this woman does that, that really stuck out to me. And the first one is found right in the beginning, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. It says, one day Elijah went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman. Well-to-do is describing that this woman had some wealth. She had some stuff going for her. And then it says, she urged him to stay for a meal. Someone say, urged him to stay. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. The first thing that sticks out to me about this story is the very first thing we see this woman do. She urges him to stay. It's the very first thing that we, that we take note of about this woman. The very first action she takes is she urges him to stay. The scripture tells us that Elijah had gone to Shunem. He went to Shunem. In other words, Elijah was in the neighborhood. And there's this woman who was well-to-do. There's this woman who had wealth, this woman who was well-known in her community, this woman who, from an outside perspective, didn't need anything. And she sees this prophet walking through the town, and she urged him to stay. One thing that we can take note about this story is we're immediately struck by this woman's character of generosity. We can see that this woman was generous. We can instantly point this out. The Shunammite woman, she didn't have to invite Elisha over. Elisha wasn't even looking for a place to eat. She didn't need to, but this woman saw Elijah walking through her town. She saw him, she saw an opportunity, and she urged him to stay. Can I tell you this morning that this is exactly what we are doing at this moment? The fact that you are here this morning is a picture of what we see the Shunammite woman do in our story. Nobody forced you to be here today. You woke up this morning and you made the conscious decision to put yourself in the house of God. Just by being here this morning, you have done the very first thing. You have repeated what we see the Shunammite woman do. You have placed yourself in the presence of the Almighty God. Well, the Bible says that wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst. That tells us that God is in the building today. Come on, do you believe that? And, and the truth is, is you could have slept in this morning. You could have decided to stay home. You could have just said, ah, I'll go next week. But you didn't do that. You made the conscious decision that God is in the neighborhood and I'm not gonna miss an opportunity to be there. That's what you did this morning. And it doesn't matter if you're a normal weekend attender. It doesn't matter if you've been here many times before. It doesn't matter if it's your first time here today. I want you to know this morning that you haven't just walked into a church building, but you've walked yourself into an opportunity to have an encounter with the living God. And the truth is that this is hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this because our minds tell us this, it can't be that simple. There's no way it's that easy, but can I tell you this morning, it really is. James 4, 8 tells us that as we come near to God, God will come near to us. It says in Matthew chapter 7, for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. And so we see in this story that Elisha, he was in the neighborhood. 
Elijah went to Shunem. The Shunammite woman didn't go to Elijah. Elijah came to Shunem where this woman lived. Let me remind you this morning that God is so much closer to you than you think he really is. It doesn't matter how you're feeling at the moment. Maybe right now God feels really far away. Maybe in your mind, oh, God's busy doing other things, doing other things for better people. I need to tell you today that God is closer than you think he is. Even when it feels like he's not around, God is right there. How, how close is he? I believe God is always within the reach of your decisions. That's how close God is, is all we have to do is make one decision that as we come near to God, God will come near to us. And the reason why is because God has already done all the heavy lifting. Scripture tells us that God chose us, what, first. We didn't choose him first, he chose us first. He paid the price. He did all the heavy lifting. So the reason why it's simple is because he chose us first. And so in response, all we are required to do is to choose him back. God is always within the reach of your decisions. You don't have to go on some deep search, some long journey, because let me tell you, God is in the neighborhood today. God is in the building today. And all he needs is an open door. All God needs is an open invitation. He needs somebody to urge him to stay. That's what God is waiting for today. And this Shunammite woman, she takes the first step and she urged him to stay. Come on, give your neighbor a high five and tell him, you've done the first thing. All you guys are all passing so far. You guys are in a good place today. One of the things I love about this story is uh, you don't have to read much of it to see the progression between the Shunammite woman and the prophet Elisha. Like, it's very concise. It's like six scriptures, and you've got the general gist of it. I love stories like that. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and so we see this progression between this woman of Shunam and Elisha. I'll show it to you in verse number eight. It says, one day Elisha went to Shunam, and a well-to-do woman was there, and she, she urged him to stay for a meal. Obviously, the food was good because whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. So she urged Elijah to join her for a meal, but that invitation led to an open-door relationship. Come on, do you see that? That originally, she urged him for a meal. You guys know a meal, it's, it's a one-time thing. It's a singular thing. Come on, we all have those people that we've invited for a meal, and they're never getting the invite back. You know what I'm talking about. This, she, she invited him for a meal, but Scripture tells us that every time Elijah was in the neighborhood, he came over for a meal. Are you seeing the progression of this relationship happen? It's no longer just about a meal. It's become a common thing. It's become a normal occurrence. I, I like to picture it like this. We see this woman progress from an Easter Sunday morning service annual visitor to a normal weekend attender. That's what we see take place. It's, it's a one-time thing, but it leads to a repeating, reoccurring situation becomes a normal thing for her. I love that you can see the progression of this relationship. I think part of the reason why I love it so much is because I believe one of the biggest lacks in the church today is there's a major lack of progression in people's relationship with God. 
Churches today are full of people whose relationship with God looks a lot like what we see in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. It's become no more than a weekly occurrence that takes place. We come in on a Sunday, we get some food, we make ourselves feel a little better about ourselves and we go home. And it's fine in the beginning, but the truth is, is how many people waste years of their life attending a church service every single week, but it never progresses past the point of a spiritual meal that we stop by for and then we go back to our, spirit, our normal lives. And I think this describes a lot of people in our world today. And if we're being honest, I think this would describe every single one of us at one point or another in our lives. I know for myself, I grew up in church. I, I've been going to church for as long as I can remember. And, and growing up in church, somehow I, I made this, this tie that my attendance in church was able to diminish my mistakes or, or my, my failures throughout the week or somehow my, my attendance in church for some reason made me a better person than I actually was. Anybody ever done that before? And, and the fact that I would go to church on Wednesday nights and, and Friday nights and Sunday mornings and I attended the conferences, I attended the men's discipleships, I attended the events, the worship nights, I attended all those things that somehow just being present at those things made me a better person than the people who weren't there. And, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized, who cares how many church events I attend if there's no progression in my life? You know, like going to church, it doesn't make you a better person. Going to church doesn't justify your actions or your, your mistakes or your failures or, or how you live. You know what I never understood? I don't understand the people that come to church on a Sunday just because that's what a good person does. When I was in high school, I had tons of friends who were like, yeah, I'm Catholic and I go to church once a year because, because I'm a Catholic and that's who I am and that's what I do. Why? You ever thought about that? If, if it doesn't have any effect on your life and you're not gonna apply what it is that you're hearing, then why go? But this is what we see happen throughout our world today all the time. Churches are full of people that they, they come to church because that's what a good person does. Because, because it makes them better than the average person. And if that's why you're here this morning, if you came this morning, if you came to church just to go to church, can I tell you something? Can I tell you congratulations that you're better than the average person in your mind? That's what you've accomplished. That you're, you're officially a better person than the people that aren't here today according to you. But how long Will people settle for better than average when God wants you to be the best that you can be? And attending might make you better than average, but applying makes you the best that you can be. God hasn't called you to be an attender. God says it is good for the one who takes what, I, takes what they hear and apply it to their lives. That's what we're called to do. And the truth is, is we've given God a seat at the table. We've made it a normal occurrence. This is what I do. I go to church. This is me. This is, this is my family. This is our way of life. And that's great. But God doesn't just want a seat at your table. God wants the throne of your heart. And a lot of us, we keep that spot reserved for something else. So the Shunammite woman, when we see her, she urges him to stay. 
And, and what does she do next? What's the next step? Well, we pick up the story again, again in verse number eight. It says, one day Elijah went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. And so whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. In verse nine, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. So let us make a room. Someone say make a room. Let us make a room on the roof and put in it a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp for him. And then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. So we see that this woman has established this relationship with Elijah. And, and now she comes to this decision that just having a meal every once in a while with this guy, it's, it's not enough. This, this isn't good enough for me. There, there's something special about this prophet Elisha. I know that this man that comes is a holy man of God. I, there's something special about this guy. And, and one meal a week is not going to cut it for me anymore. And the next thing we see her do is she begins to make room. She begins to make room. Did you know that God wants to progress from a dinner guest to a resident in your life? It starts as an invitation. It starts with someone urging him to stay. And then it grows into a seat at the table. It grows into an open door relationship, but it doesn't stop there. But it needs to continue to progress. And in order for your relationship with God to progress, you need to make room. 2 Kings 4.10 says, let us make a room on the roof. Take note of how she's saying, let us make a room on the roof. Why is that important? Because it shows us that there wasn't room for Elijah anywhere else in the house. It shows that, that her house was full. That there wasn't any space for Elisha. And she doesn't give Elisha a spare bedroom. She doesn't give him an extra, uh, some extra blankets and throw them over the couch. But she says, let us make a room on the roof for this man. Did you know that God can't occupy space that's being occupied by something else in your life? And one of the deadliest and sneakiest killers in, in your relationship with God that has snuck its way into the church is something that doesn't seem so bad. And it's this one word, it's busyness. Come on, life gets so busy. Come on, do you agree with that? I remember when I was in high school, I remember thinking my life would never get busier than it is right now. I remember thinking that. And I know a lot of you probably think, well, that's stupid. And I'm, yeah, I, I recognize that now. But at the time, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be busier than I am because I was involved in church. I was doing, I was doing all my normal stuff in church. And uh, on top, I was attending all the services. And then I had, uh, I had a zero period, which was I had to be at school at 630, ew, and sing. I had zero period choir. Anybody that's ever in school, never, ever take zero period choir because the last thing you want to do in the morning when you wake up is sing in like French. What the heck? No one wants to do that. And so I wake up in the morning, I go to school and I'd, I'd choir at zero period. So I get there at 6.30 and then I had cross country. Talk about a jacked up schedule. Love you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would go to cross country. So I'd be at school at 6.30, get home at like 4. And then I'd, uh, on the way home from cross country, my mom would take me to McDonald's, which is why I don't have a runner's body, because I run to eat. And so I'd go to McDonald's. And then uh, we'd get home. I'd change, shower, and then we'd go to church. And it just felt like I was so busy. 
You know what I mean? Like I did all my homework in classes that weren't that it wasn't due. That that was the kind of guy that I was. Uh, and uh, it just felt like I was so busy. Like life couldn't get busier than it is right now. And the truth is that the older you get, somehow miraculously, the busier you become. The older you get, the more stuff gets added to your schedule. And, and because we become so busy, we find ourselves operating at a max occupancy. Our lives get so full of stuff, and it's not necessarily bad stuff, but our life gets so full of things. We get so busy at work. We get so busy with our family. get so busy with school. get so busy with sports. get busy with birthdays, holidays, events, so many different things, church services. We just get so busy. And sometimes it feels like we're constantly adding and adding to our lives, and things just don't go away. Anybody ever feel that way? And the truth is, the busier that we become, what we'll see is it'll begin to affect the way that we spend our time. And, and the devil has placed this dangerous trap in the church today, and it's a lie that connects your value to your busyness. Like, like being extra busy somehow makes you extra important. Can I break that lie this morning and tell you that it's not true? But somehow in our minds, we, we, we make this association like, oh, the reason why I don't have any time is just because I'm, I'm so important doing all these other things. I'm so valuable. We make this tie. Like for some reason, the busier that we are, the more value that we have. But when you look at the scripture, God always speaks about your value, but God never speaks about your busyness. God always talks about your value, how, how much you're worth. And God never offers to add stuff to your schedule. God never offers to make you more busy than you are. What God offers is rest. I heard a quote that says, that, uh, from a pastor that said, busyness is a lie from the devil that that, that diminishes the power of the Sabbath and says, I can do more through my work than God can do in my rest. And, and here's the thing about rest. I think sometimes we don't really truly understand what rest is. Like rest isn't a lazy day of sitting in your underwear, throwing down a bag of Doritos and binging Netflix. A lot of time, that's how I view rest. You know what I mean? Like, especially football season. My rest, I get home from church, get in my underwear, and I watch the Cleveland Browns win. That's prophecy. See that? Uh, and that, that's, that's just what I do. That, I picture my rest like that. And, and I recently came across this thought that I want to share with you. And when you look at the book of Genesis, when God is creating everything, I found myself asking this question. God, why did you rest on the seventh day? You ever think about that? Have you ever asked that question? If you haven't, that's okay. I'm asking it for you. Why did God rest on day seven? You ever think about that? You know, if I, I like to think if I'm God, I probably would have rested halfway through. You know, split up the workload a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that just seems like the right thing. And I want you to follow this with me. We look at day one, God created light. Probably not a good day to rest when all there is is light and nothing else, right? There's not, probably not much to do. And so, so it makes sense. He, he wouldn't rest on day two. But day two says that God created the sky. 
again, doesn't really lean itself for resting because you know you gotta think like like levitating in the sky probably exerts some energy in some way. And so he wouldn't rest in the, in the sky. And then uh, day three, God separated land and sea. Now you start thinking, okay, this is like a private beach getaway in Hawaii where no one else exists. That sounds pretty awesome to me. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's a perfect, beautiful beach day. And then it says that God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and, 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 and he, doesn't, he doesn't take a tanning day and rest. Doesn't happen. And it says that God created the fish and the animals. And, and, and most of us would take our break there, fishing, you know, go hunting, make some bison burgers, and uh, smoke some weenies on a, on a fire. Like that seems like a good day, right? How many of you guys love to fish? I don't know why you love to fish, but you love to fish. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is where I think that it would make a good day of rest, but he doesn't rest. Then day six, something awesome happens. God creates man. He created man, and then God rested. You gotta think if God wanted peace and quiet, if God wanted solitude, he wouldn't have rested after the creation of man. He wouldn't have rested after, the, the, after he created man. He would have rested after there were animals that couldn't talk. He would have rested before the animals were made so he wouldn't have to deal with a stupid fly flying at his ear on the beach. And so this, this opens our eyes to see that, that rest isn't just a day of sleeping in and, and catching our breath. That's not what rest is. Maybe the reason why God rested on the seventh day was because he had finally created something worth spending time with. So, so maybe rest isn't a lazy weekend away. But rest is something that happens when you put off the busyness that's in your life and you make room for God to dwell with you. A lot of people, they go through, man, I just really need a vacation. Maybe what you really need is to make a little bit of room in your life and allow God to dwell with you because the rest doesn't come from a lazy weekend away. The rest comes from the time that God and man dwell together. Rest isn't something that we can achieve. Rest is something that only God can give to us. Said, the Bible says that God named the seventh day holy. Have you ever thought about why? I like to think the reason why the seventh day is holy is because it's the very first day that we can see God and man dwelling together. And so we see in this story, this Shunammite woman, she, she didn't have room for Elisha in her home. But, but that wasn't an excuse she was gonna allow to stop her. Instead, she said, let me make room above the occupied space in my life. She said, let me build a room on the roof. In other words, my house is full. I don't have room for Elisha to stay. So let me make a space above everything else. You know where God belongs in your life? Above everything else in your life. And so she made a room in the roof. Sometimes I think we go through life and it's like, oh, we don't have room for God to operate in our lives. So what do we do? We need to make room. 2 Kings 4 verse 10, let us make a room on the roof and put in it a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. That way when he's here, he can stay with us. So I want to ask you this question. How can we expect God to operate in our lives 
if his space is occupied by other things. We need to learn to make room. That's the second thing that we see. And then the third thing is found in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, starting with verse 11. It says, one day when Elijah came, he went up to his room. Take note, he's lying in the room that this woman had just made for him. And so he's lying in his room. He lays down there. And verse 12, he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. And so he called her and she stood before him. And Elijah said to her, tell her, you have gone through all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she replied, I have a home among my own people. I have a home among my own people. Basically what she is saying in this moment, she is saying, I have everything that I need. That is what this means. I have a home among my people. Elijah's asking, what can we do for you? And this woman says, you don't need to do anything. I have everything that I need. And then we come across verse 14 and it says this, Elijah asked, what can be done for her? There's something about this woman right here that really grabbed my attention. Because you cannot read this story and not be blown away by the generosity that this woman puts on display. Think about this with me. When, when we start off the story, Elijah's walking through the town and she urges him to stay for a meal. She didn't have to do that. Elijah wasn't even looking for a meal, but she urges him to stay. She, she feeds him and it grows to the point to now, every time Elijah's in the town, she's making him dinner. It's, that's generous. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then on top of that, she builds a bachelor pad on her roof for this guy to stay in. So not only is she making this guy food, she's invested money and work. She's built a place for him to stay in her house. She's been extremely generous. But in verse 14, we're made aware of something else that the entirety of this story so far, we're made known about two things about this woman. Verse eight tells us that she was wealthy. Verse 13 tells us that she was content. How many of you guys know it's easy to be generous when you have wealth? It's easy to give when you aren't the one in need. It's easy to be generous when you have everything you need. But what caught my attention is found in verse 14. Is everyone still with me? In 2 Kings 4.14, it says this, Elijah asked, what can be done for her? Nothing inspires me more than to see people whose lives don't reflect what they do not have. I'll explain it a little simpler. The fact that Elijah is asking this woman what can be done for you, it tells me that after all of this time of eating together, after all of this time of spending time together, he was never made known to anything she did not have. This is similar to the kind of thing you experience on a missions trip. And when you walk into a building full of people who seemingly have nothing, who have no excess of anything, but it has no effect on their lives. And meanwhile, you can look around our society today and, they, and, and we have people that they give the hard things, the struggle, the difficulty. They give the things that they don't have so much power to the point to where it controls their life. 
The things that they don't have have total control over their minds, their thoughts, their generosity, their joy, and their peace. Can I encourage you this morning that you don't control your struggle? And so the worst thing you can do is let your struggle control you. You have no say in what you're going to go through in your life. The Bible says your book has already been written. You don't control the outcome. You don't control the story. So don't allow your suffering and the hardship to control you. 2 Kings verse 14, it says, What can be done for her, Elijah asked. And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. And then Elijah said, call to her. And so he called to her and she stood in the doorway. She's standing at the doorway at the room that she has built. And he says, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. Before I jump into the next part, like I said, I could talk about this for a whole month. A little side, you can speak a whole message on this one scripture. You will hold a son in your arms because what I see there is that God doesn't promise a pregnancy because we know later in this story, we find out this woman hasn't been able to have a son for a very long time. Doesn't say she wasn't able to get pregnant. It says she wasn't able to give birth. And so we read in this scripture, Elijah saying you, he's not saying you will get pregnant. He's saying you will hold a son. God's promise. Promises are never incomplete. God only ever promises completion. And so we continue this story. The woman responds to this. She says, no, my Lord, please, man of God, do not mislead your servant. I want you to leave that scripture up there for me. This scripture is crucial for us to understanding this story. The entire story we have read so far, it talks about how this woman is wealthy and how this woman doesn't need anything. But in verse 16, it opens our eyes to the fact that this woman was suffering. That this woman was in pain. She's saying, don't mislead me. In other words, I, it's not possible for me. Uh, it's never gonna happen for me. I've done everything and it hasn't worked. I've done everything in my ability for it to happen, but it's just not in the cards for me anymore. This woman is suffering. And the people around her may not have known it, but it doesn't change the fact that it wasn't happening. She'd been suffering for so long that she accepted the fact that it would never happen for her. Focus in with me on this. Sometimes the pain of not getting what you've asked for is greater than the risk of hoping for a miracle you may never see. This woman has been praying for this miracle. She's been longing for a son and it never happens. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, Praying and hoping and believing for something that never comes to pass, it'll rot you from the inside out. It'll hurt. It'll be difficult. And this is what this woman is going through. She's been praying. She's been believing. And everything she's tried, it doesn't work. She's hurting. She's suffering. And even though this woman was suffering, 
even though she had given up on her dreams, even though she had decided that it was never gonna happen for her anymore, she leaves us this tip that I believe can change our lives. And she does this, she serves through her suffering. She serves through our, we have to be able to serve through our suffering. What she was going through, what she didn't have, did not affect her generosity towards Elisha. It didn't change the fact that she urged him to stay. It didn't stop her from building him a room. She continued to serve through her struggle. So we look at this story, she did three things. She urged him to stay, she made room, and she served through her suffering. And those three decisions, they lead us to verse number 17, and we pick it up, it says this, but the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. It's amazing. We see this woman, she finally gets her miracle. She finally gets what she's been hoping for, what she had lost hope in. She finally receives her miracle. But the story doesn't end there. And the story, it, it, it carries on. And, and I think one thing that most of us would probably recognize, and if you haven't, you will learn one day, is that every decision that you make today doesn't just affect today, but it affects your future. And we see this play out in this story, and, and we pick it up again in verse number 18, just two scriptures later. Verse number 18 says, the child grew old, and, and one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. They're, they're doing some yard work, and, and, his, and he said to his father, my head, my head, and his father told the servant everything that every dad would say. He said, go to mom. And so he took him to his mother. And then after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. If this woman ever had any reason to throw in the towel, this was it. I mean, she did everything right. She pushed through her struggle. She, she urged him to stay. She, she didn't allow her struggle to control her. She made room for Elisha and didn't ask for anything in return. And, and the one thing she wasn't willing to ask for, because it hurt too bad to believe again, she finally has. And then two scriptures later, her miracle dies. As if she hadn't been through enough grieving, the, the inability to have a child in the first place. And now she finally receives her miracle and it gets taken from her. Here's a hard question that we should all ask ourselves. What do you do when your miracle dies? How do you respond when your miracle dies? When the thing that you've been praying for and believing for, you finally have, and then it gets taken from you. And as we go through the rest of this story, what we're gonna begin to see is we're gonna see everything that this Shunammite woman does in the beginning of this story, she's going to repeat again. She's gonna do it all again. And we start off in verse number 21. Her son has just died. And it says, 
that she went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God. Take note of that. She didn't just lay him on her bed. She didn't just leave him where he was. She took him to the room that she built for Elijah and she laid him on his bed. And then she shut the door and she went out. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. And so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when he saw her in a distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there is the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her these questions. Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And the woman responds, everything is all right. How in the world could this woman possibly respond in this way? How can she possibly say that everything is okay? That after the loss of her own son, she can look Gehazi in the face and say, everything is fine. Gehazi saying, is your child all right? And she looks at Gehazi and says, everything is fine. How could she possibly do that? How can she respond in this way? And as I sat and thought about this, I was reminded of the fact that this is what she has been doing since the beginning of this story. Elijah asked, what can be done for you? And she said, nothing. Even though this woman was suffering, she said, there's nothing that can be done. I have everything that I need. I don't need anything from you, Elijah. She says that even though in the middle of suffering, she wasn't going to allow her suffering to have the upper hand in her life. She knew that she was going through it. She wasn't being naive about her problems, but there's a difference about being naive and being negative about everything. And sometimes you have to make the decision that I'm not gonna be negative about the struggle in my life. I'm not gonna allow the struggle in my life to come over me and tame me and decide how I live and how I act and how I respond. We have to make the decision like we see the Shunammite woman do and say, even though I don't have everything I want. God provides everything that I need. And so Elijah asked, what can be done for you? And she says, nothing. And now here we are. Gehazi says, is your child all right? And she says, everything is fine. Once again, we're seeing this woman push through her suffering. She's, she's serving through her service. She's continuing to move forward. And as she's doing this, we continue the story in verse 27. It says, when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took a hold of his feet. And Gehazi, like a little punk, came over to push her. What a jerk. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. And she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? And Elijah said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anybody you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer and lay my staff on the boy's face. But look at this, but the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so he got up and followed her. 
This has nothing to do with my, West, my message, but if you want something to look into this week, if you look into the story of Elisha while he was following his predecessor, Elijah, what you will see is Elisha was following Elijah and he was saying, I want a double anointing of your spirit. I want a double anointing of your spirit. And Elijah says, if you're there when I get taken up to heaven, you can have it. And the entirety of the rest of their story, every time Elijah goes anywhere, he says, Elisha, don't worry about coming. It's not that important. Elijah says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will never leave you. And so we see Elijah comes face to face with someone replicating his exact faith. And it compels him. And it says, so he, he got up and he followed her. And so again, we see the story. She, she urges him to come. Just like what, what she did in the very first verse, in verse number eight, it says that Elisha went to Shunem and she urged him to stay for a meal. And now she grabs Elisha by the feet. Elisha's already sent his servant Gehazi. And she says, no, that's not enough. I need you, Elisha, to come. I didn't build the room for Gehazi. I made the room for you. I need you in that space. So she grabs him by the feet and she urges him to come. And so even though Elisha sends his servant, Elisha goes with the Shunammite woman and he follows. And in verse number 32, it says, when Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead, where? On his couch. On whose couch? On Elisha's couch, in Elisha's room, on the roof. If I can, let me take you back to verse number 10 that we read earlier. It says this, let us make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. I think this small detail in this story shows us something crucial, that this Shunammite woman didn't just prepare a place for Elijah to rest in. It wasn't just for Elijah to sleep. She didn't just give Elisha a bed. She didn't just give him sheets and a, and a pillow, but she put in a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. She put in a bed, a desk, a chair, and a lamp. In other words, she didn't just prepare a place for Elijah to stay. She prepared a place for Elisha to work. So why is it important that we make room for God in our lives? Because even though the Shunammite woman was not aware of it, even though she didn't see it, was that as she prepared a place for Elisha, God was preparing a place for her. You see, she wasn't aware of it at the time. She wasn't just making room for Elijah. She was making room for her miracle. It was the moment that Elijah stepped into the room that she made for him that led to the miracle of her receiving a son. The scripture tells us that when Elijah went to the room that she had prepared and lied on his bed, he asked this question, what can be done for you? And a few scriptures later in verse 13, it says that the woman is standing at the doorway of the room that she built and Elijah tells her, this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. 
It was at the doorway of the room that she made for Elijah that a miracle goes into her life. The thing that she had been hoping for, believing for, and, and the thing that she thought would never happen, it came to her as she made a room. And so then we see in verse number 33, it says, Elijah went in and he shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And so we're back and Elijah's in the room and who's at the doorway? The Shunammite woman. We're back at the exact place of her miracle. And it says, that he got on the bed and he laid on the boy mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And as he stretched himself out on him, the, bodies, the boy's body grew warm. And Elijah turned away and walked back and forth in the room, then got on the bed, stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and his eyes opened. The room that she built for Elijah to dwell in, it was the very room that Elijah performed in. Why is it important that we make room? Because the space that you give God to occupy in your life is the space that he will use to operate in your life. She wasn't just making room for Elijah. She was making room for her miracle. And maybe there's somebody in this building today that you've been needing a miracle. You've been believing for God to come through. Let me ask you a question. Have you made room? It's so easy for our lives to become so full. Maybe for you, it's like what we talked about earlier. It's just the everyday necessary things, work, family, school, sports. It's just the everyday normal stuff. Maybe for you, you've, you've gotten into some bad habits and now they're starting to fill your life. Maybe for you, uh, your life is being filled with junk from, from what you watch or what you listen to or your life's being filled with bad things from the people that you hang out with or your life's being filled with negative things from something you started doing that you know you shouldn't be doing. And look, it happens to all of us. All of us have to deal with this where our lives just become full and busy. That's completely normal. And, and we find ourselves confused as to why God feels non-existent in our lives, but there's no room for him to be anywhere. Some of us today, our minds, they, they look like a home that you would see in the show Hoarders. How many of you guys have seen that show? Some of us, that's how our mind looks. It's just so full of crap that you can't even get through the door. And, and we think about how everything is so miserable. Our life sucks all because we don't have this one thing. My life is terrible. I, I don't know how I'm gonna keep moving forward. Can I tell you this morning that God wants to renew your mind, but in order for him to renew your mind, he has to be able to get into it. We need to take a page from the Shunammite woman's book not, not being naive, but, but, but stop being so negative. This woman, she, she urges him to stay. And then she makes room and she serves through her suffering. And I think we can all relate to this woman. But just for a moment, I'd like to just take an opportunity 
for anybody in this building who hasn't accepted Christ into their lives, you've never made the decision to make Jesus Lord over your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Let me start off by telling you that there's a miracle that can take place today. We just read about two amazing miracles in, in the book of 2 Kings, and, and there's a miracle that can happen today in your life. And that miracle is found in the gospel. It's the reason why all of us are here, and the gospel is really simple. It's the fact that we're all failures. We all make mistakes. Nobody is excluded from that. But the gospel is the fact that we don't have to pay the price for our mistakes. That the cost of our failures, the cost of our mistakes, the cost of our sin is eternal death. But because of the gospel, the gospel is the fact that God sent his son down to this earth to die a criminal's death. So that way our mistakes and our failures, they wouldn't be put on our shoulders, but they'd be transferred to his. And in return, he would give us a brand new start, a brand new life. He would exchange our death for eternal life through him. It's a miracle that, that, that can take place today. It's the greatest miracle that, that, that could ever happen to your life. And all you need to do this morning in order to receive that miracle is replicate what we see this woman do. You've already done the first thing. You've urged him to say, you've, you, you decided to come here this morning. It was the best decision you've made. But there's one more step. We have to make room for that miracle to take place. And how do we do that? It's found in Romans 10, verse 9. It says that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if there's anybody in this building today that wants that miracle to transpire in their life, that recognizes I make mistakes, I'm not perfect, and I need the atoning blood of Jesus to heal me, to, to, to reconcile me, to forgive me. If there's anybody in this room that wants to make that decision today, would you just raise your hand wherever you're at? Come on, don't think, I see those two hands right there. Come on, wherever you're at, just raise your hand. Don't think about it, just throw your hand up. Nobody looking around, we're not gonna embarrass you. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. Just a moment. If there's anybody in this building today. Amen. If you raised your hand, come on, can I ask you to join me up here at, this, at the front of this stage? Come on, we're just gonna pray for you. best decision you could ever make. And how old are you? You're nine? It's amazing. What's funny is that even though you're nine years old, and I'm 24 now, which makes me feel really old, it doesn't change the fact that both of us are in desperate need of a Savior. Because both of us aren't perfect. We've both made mistakes. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna do something really simple. We're just gonna, we're gonna pray a prayer together. We're gonna pray that, that, that we believe that Christ died on the cross for us and we believe that he rose again. And we're gonna make him Lord over our lives. And in the moment that we do that, 
The Bible says that, that every mistake you've ever made will be wiped away, that you'll be made a new creation. That's what we're gonna do. Can you pray with me? Just repeat after me. Oh, Jesus, I come before you today. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've made mistakes. God, but I believe that you came to this earth, you lived a perfect life, and you died as a sacrifice for me. But it didn't end there. But three days later, you rose again. And I'm making you Lord over my life today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Come on, can we put our hands together this morning? Amen. Amen. So before we leave this morning, I'd just like to give an opportunity. I really do believe that every single one of us, regardless of what situation you may be going through, regardless of what stage of life you're in, I think every single one of us can relate with this woman. That this woman lives in a certain way that, that challenges me. I've been fighting these feelings since I started working on this message. This woman just puts me to shame and makes me feel like I'm such a failure and how much better she is than me. But the truth is it just opens our eyes to see that we all have stuff that we need to work on. And so we've made the first decision. You've urged him to come, you're here today. It was such a great decision that you did this morning. But it's gotta progress past that. We have to begin to apply what we hear. We have to begin to not just come in and consume and consume, but we need to replicate what we see this woman do out of her generosity. So we need to, we need to progress past that. And, and for some of us, it may look like we need to make some room, that our life is just full of stuff and it's just occupying our thoughts, our mind, it's occupying our actions. We need to make some room for God to dwell in. In order for God to operate, he needs a space to occupy. And so maybe your life is just so full right now that it's time that we put some stuff off to the side and we give God the room he needs. Or maybe for you, it's, it's the fact that, that you're suffering right now. And you've given that suffering the upper hand in your life. And it's difficult, it's hard. but maybe you need to make the decision today that I'm gonna serve through my suffering. I'm gonna push beyond this. This is not gonna define me. This is not gonna describe me. I'm gonna push beyond what I don't have. I'm not gonna allow what I don't have affect the way that I live. Come on, if anybody can relate to those today. Come on, can you stand to your feet with me? Come on, let's make a commitment today that we're gonna work on those things. We're not just gonna hear it and leave. We're gonna take it and we're gonna apply it to our lives. Come on, the, the word of God isn't just for us to read. It's for us to be corrected and for us to apply it to our lives. Come on, just begin to pray with me right now. God, I recognize the fact God, that it's so easy for my life to be full of things that are in there that are in the incorrect place, God. Help me, God, make room for you. Help me make room for you in my thoughts, make room for you in my life, God. Whether it requires me to build a room above everything else, if that's what I have to do, God, then let me be willing to do it. I don't want just an encounter, I don't want a weekly service, God. I want an everyday open door relationship with your own place.
God, I pray, God, for every person in this room, whether someone is suffering in this room, whatever they're going through, God, that they would make the decision today that I'm not going to allow this suffering to control me, to tame me, but I'm going to push beyond this. And even though it may not be exactly how I want it, God, you are Jehovah Jireh. You meet my needs. And so I pray, God, that every person that leaves this building today, they would have a conscious decision that goes above their personal actions, God, a decision that's above their situation that says, I will not allow this to dictate the way that I live my life. I'm going to serve and push through my suffering. God, we love you this morning. We thank you for everything that you're doing, and we know, God, that you're just in the beginning of what we're going to see. God, we're praying it, we're believing it into existence, God, that we're going to see our city, our schools transformed by the very people that are in this building today. God, use us. Use us to make a difference in our world, God. We know, God, how the future ends, God, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And so we're, we're speaking it into existence, into our city, into our jobs, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, God, that you're not done and the best is still to come. We love you in Jesus' name. Sing it out, come on, it's all about you. Yeah, it's all.